You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, May the 31st. It's a little bit overcast in TW11 this morning. There's been more rain in the area. I'm not that far away from Epsom Downs, where the going now ahead of the Kazoo Oaks and Derby at the weekend is currently soft, good to soft in places. Plenty of ease in the ground there. The news came through to us yesterday from the Jockey Club with approval from the sponsors and the British Horse Racing Authority that the Derby would now be run as the Kazoo Derby in memory of Lester Piggott. And I don't think anybody would have too many objections to that. And thank you for all your thoughts on yesterday's tribute to Lester Piggott. Some wonderful voices from around the industry contributing to that. And if you have missed it, you can listen to it. It'll follow on straight off the back of this edition. Talk about the ground at Epsom. The ground and the preparation of racecourse surfaces is very much the talking point in the sport in the UK at present because no fewer than four different turf venues across this land have had to prematurely abandon their fixtures of late, the meetings having already started, because of horses slipping, either just slipping or in some cases slipping and falling. Rishi Passad is with me today. Rishi, what's going on here? Yes, Nick. Uh, four meetings abandoned in the space of five days as well, uh, in weather conditions that you would find pretty standard for this time of the year in terms of there's no extremes of weather there's no extremes of uh, dr- drought or rainfall so it's 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 pretty regular in uh, conditions that um, race courses would have encountered but Beverly last Wednesday Haydock on Friday Chester on Saturday and Lingfield on Monday abandoned because of horses riders slipping on bends uh, ultimately when I look at the situation as a regular race goer, as a regular viewer of the sport, I'm looking at the conditions that the, that the race courses are having to deal with and thinking, I don't understand why there's a problem. Um, and as a consequence, I suspect that there are a lot of people watching saying, how come we have got an issue when we have got pretty standard weather going on at the moment? Perhaps it's a result of something else, but the explanation is very hard to come to. It's extremely hard to come to. In a moment, I'll be talking to Ed Arkell, the clerk of the course at Goodwood Racecourse. That's not one of the racecourses involved here, but he has a, a very interesting take on why this, this may have been happening. There have been plenty of theories being banded about. Uh, perhaps it's best to start, however, with Dale Gibson from the Professional Jockeys Association, who has been sort of collating all the reports from the jockeys at the various tracks and trying to communicate that to the British Horse Racing Authority, who themselves are now saying they are holding an investigation is to, into whether there is any causal commonality here and to see whether there's anything they can do about it. Let's hear from, from Dale first, and then we'll be talking to PJ McDonald, who is the president of the flat branch of the Professional Jockeys Association and one of the safety officers, uh, and then to, to Ed Arkell before we hear from Rishi again. Dale Gibson first. Yeah, a combination of, of factors, Nick. It started at Nottingham a few weeks ago, if you recall, when Holly Doyle um, came down um, into the home straight round that home bed a, a, a pretty heavy fall she was very fortunate she wasn't injured when the, when the lead horse just slipped up completely uh, slipped up on the bend there was then uh, then an issue at, at Catrick where the senior riders weren't happy with uh, with, with how the uh, how the surface was riding there there's in a little bit of a lull uh, before uh, the, the issues of the last week and, and they've come thick and fast Beverly was primarily down to the rail alignment, which was uh, pretty uh, heavily reported. They've moved the rail out onto fresh virgin ground. Um, potentially, they hadn't quite done enough prep work around that area um, with the actual with the actual turf. It was fresh turf. A lot of horses were skidding and slipping around. And the jockeys did absolutely the right thing in inspecting and abandoning on safety reasons for horse and jockey. We then had the issue at Haydock. They were on the inner track at Haydock, three-day meeting. Uh, it, was, it was unfortunate. Not going to point any, any, any finger at Kirkland and his team, but horses slipped again. Then we had Chester. Unprecedented a horse slipping at Chester. It's a very 
well-maintained track. Even though it's tight, the bends are very well-maintained. Horses are generally um, uh, happy around there because of the racing surface. But that was uh, a, a real negative for Chester. And then obviously the, uh, the, the evidence from Lingfield today backed up this poor run that we've had in, in, in the last 10 days. George Hill said that he hadn't prepped up the track any differently to the Derby trial meeting, but horses again slipped and they abandoned two races. We have had a dry spring, Nick, but we've had dry springs in the past. And I just think we've all got to get together with the BHAs, that'll be the jockeys and the trainers, and try and iron this out as soon as possible. Dale, in your opinion, is there is there any commonality between these events? Is something happening? Is there an underlying phenomenon that's leading to this? Or is this just a weird coincidence? It's, it's, it's bizarrely a combination of the two. We've had a very dry spring and therefore the race courses almost to a man or woman have had to water to maintain good to firm ground and it's been over a period of time we've hardly had any rain however i think we have to be realistic that it's just purely down to that um we've we've, we've, we've got an issue with one or two um uh, bends without a shadow of a doubt um over a period of time perhaps that watering that consistent watering has made a difference and has has actually slightly altered um the uh, the, the way that water supports get a purchase or rather lack of it um and i just think we've all got to get our heads together with the bha and the ntf and try and sort this problem out as soon as possible because the confidence of the jockeys has certainly diminished in the last week or 10 days dale gibson there with an overview now to the specifics and to those at the heart of the action, PJ McDonald is a rider who is the president of the flat branch of the PJA, and he's also one of the key safety officers who will be leading delegations when instances like this happen. And I began by asking him whether, in his opinion, there was just something significantly different about the way the tracks were this year compared to, to previous seasons. It, it, it's definitely different. I, I've um, look at we we we've often had um, had trouble with, with tracks being greasy and slippy around this time of year in the past, um, just due to grass growth and 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 just some things like you, you get the weather or something and it doesn't um, you know it doesn't play in your favour. But I, I I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I wasn't concerned at the minute because I, I've been at tracks where we've had no rain and and you know I'm probably haven't had rain for for a few days and they've been slippy which i cannot understand for the life of me um and i i don't know if it's if it's over watering too close to the day um or if it's rail movement or or what what there is happening at the minute but it's definitely becoming a, a massive issue for us at um at this time you know uh, and is it something that is preying on your mind as you go to the races it's like a hundred percent is playing on our mind, you know. Like this is a very, very dangerous sport, and as you know, riding horses is all about confidence. It's having confidence in yourself, in the horse, in the track, the people are managing the track. If I don't have confidence that I can go into a bend as fast as I want to go, and I and I'm not hundred percent sure I'm going to get around it, it's going to affect. It's going to affect everything, you know. It's going to affect your riding, your mentality. Um, so yeah, no, it, it is. At the minute, the lads I have to say have been very good and they've been very patient. But it's it's their livelihoods um, at that stake. It's their lives are at stake, and I, I honestly don't know how much how much more patience they're going to have. To be honest, um, it's like I said before. I I can understand if if we get a real torrential downpour before racing or or the weather changes something. That's that's understandable. That that happens in this country, but. We haven't really had any extreme weather for the last three or four weeks to be causing these tracks to be in the state that they're in. Uh, you say the state they're in. You do a lot of walking of tracks because that's part of your job uh, as president of the PJA and the safety officer as well. Um, have you noticed something fu different about the way they've been prepared? You go out there and think, oh, the grass is a different length or the bends are, are moving in a slightly weird way. Or, what observations can you make? Well, one one of the main reasons, and it's a thing us jockeys have um, have can't get our heads around it for years, is the rail movement. At this time of year, I I'm always told when we have a problem, when I when I report a horse slipping or something, nine times out of ten it comes back to me. Oh, it's the time of the year, the grass grows. 
stuff like this. So I, I cannot get my head around it. If, if this is the time of year that horses are prone to be slipping, why on earth would you move a rail? You know, we, we're quite happy to go around rough ground, ground that's already been been ridden on and roughed up because it gives us grip. And we can, you know, we, we can have a hell of a lot more confidence going around a rough bend than we can a nice lush bend that you could graze cattle on. Um, because when the grass is lush like that, and then you do happen to get a shower rain, and if it's quick underneath, it's just going to, one thing is going to happen, it's going to be slippy. Like, these clerks are going to have to have to get together, and they're going to have to, like, I, I don't really know 100% if anything different, Nick, is happening behind the scenes. I'm not there on a daily basis, but something is going wrong somewhere. Um, and maybe it is just time of year, but there's something else going to have to be done then to prevent this from happening. You know, these tracks are going to have to come up with a different way of prepping these bends. If what they've been doing is the same for the last 20 years, and then all of a sudden we're getting abandonments left, right and centre, well, they're going to have to change what they're doing. And they're going to have to, to, to come up with a different approach towards this. You know, because the last thing we want to be doing is getting in the car to go racing and worrying about I wonder is this track going to be alright today um, you know we, we've got to go to these clerks now before racing every day and ask has everything been done to prep these bins yeah look I, I just I just hope they I hope they admit there is a problem I, I hope they don't bury their head in the sand and, and just think it's time of year and it'll go away because we've had two fallers now um, and we've had a lot of horses slip and thank God no horse or jockey has been injured and understandably very concerned, PJ McDonald. Now, to try and get more of a handle on exactly why this was happening, I sought the counsel of someone who has a better understanding of turf husbandry than me, or indeed many of those uh, commenting on social media that this must be a function of overwatering or whatever. Uh, Ed Arkell is the, the clerk of the course at Goodwood, and I began by asking him what he thought was the likeliest cause. Um, if, I mean, I haven't walked any of those tracks and I haven't spoken to the clerk, so it's difficult to say what's actually happened on those tracks. Um, but on balance, you don't tend to find that horses slip on bends that have got plenty of moisture in, in them. Um, you know, you, you would rarely, if ever, see a horse slipping on a bend on good ground or softer. Um, you'd obviously be concerned if there's quicker ground and there's um, a lush covering of grass or it's quite long and there's a little bit of moisture on top of it. Um, those would tend to be the classic conditions for, for horses to slip on the bends. Um, but as I say, I haven't walked those tracks, so I wouldn't know you know, what the situation is there. But Goodwood is a complex track. It's a downland track that you, you for obvious reasons, because of its undulations, you can't let get too firm. So you would be probably a bit more liberal with the watering can than you would be if you were, if you were, if you were looking after a pan-flat track. There's a theory doing the rounds that this is because of a, a widespread overwatering of the tracks. It, is, that a, is that a theory that you can, you can put any credence behind or not? Um, I'm not sure how overwatering would cause this problem because where you're actually more likely to have a problem is if you don't put enough water on where you then have quick ground underneath and you've only watered the top couple of inches or inch um, and then the roots come up making the track less stable and also likely to create a shear plane, you know, effectively the same as running on a rug on a polished floor. So actually, when you've got moisture right through the profile, you're not going to get that situation where the roots come up. And, and that's a scientific fact. Um, the bends at Goodwood are obviously interesting. We have a routine that we follow for every race meeting. And yes, you're right. We would keep a little bit more moisture in the bends here um, than we might do on the rest of the track. Well, it's an interesting point you raised. But if you are going to water responsibly and sensibly, it has to be a a whole year sort of policy really doesn't it it has to be you you can't just sort of go along with a big dry spell and then go oh god suddenly bang a load of water on because then you could get instability of the ground yeah exactly and also if you let the ground dry out too much you'll find that the water or the ground doesn't take the water up as well it'll run off into low spots and you'll then get ground that's much patchier because it'll run off the high spots into the low spots and then you get quick ground easy ground quick ground easy ground which obviously becomes a classic way of breaking a horse down Interesting. Okay, the other point that I thought was I, I hadn't reckoned with was the the you were talking about lush grass and unusually lush for the time of of year. Yeah, I mean, look again. As I said, I don't know the circumstances on those tracks, but we would certainly think we are probably three weeks late 
uh, on where we ought to be. We had a very dry, cold spring. Um, and especially up here, even if the sun's been out, it's been cold, windy and cold. Whether, you know, there's just the ground's a little bit quicker than it normally would be for the state of the grass, i.e. that spring flush of grass, whether that's making a difference. You know, there might be a bit more moisture in the ground normally in April when you'd hope to get a spring flush. I don't know, but we'd certainly be further back uh, ground-wise and turf-wise than we'd expect to be at this time of year. Yeah, so just before everybody jumps on this and goes, oh, but hang on a minute, if you look at the averages, it's good ground mostly this, and it's normally good to firm at this time of the year. What you're saying is that when you get that big flush of very lush grass, it would normally be April sort of ground rather than late May, June sort of ground. Yes, certainly in, in the previous, you know, 10 years that's what you'd expect and i think it, it very much goes to show that climate change is actually affecting us possibly more than we appreciate um you look at you know we are getting colder drier later springs than we seem to have done in previous years um the rainfall does not seem to be as spread out as it used to be you seem to get these very heavy um deluges of rain and then nothing for weeks on end um, you know, a light shower now could be anything up to sort of 10, 15 millimetres of rain. Well, Ed Arkell there, the clerk of the course at Goodwood Racecourse, which presents sort of challenges, a, a bit like the challenges that, say, Andrew Cooper faces at Epsom, a downland track with lots of undulations, and it is a, it's a complex business. A lot of the tracks that we've been talking about don't face necessarily those sort of challenges. But, Rishi, I thought Ed was quite interesting there, and particularly in response to the idea that this is simply a question of overwatering per se. It's a bit more complex than that by the sounds of it. Indeed it is. I mean, you and I will, will know that on, on social media, etc., or just in general, people have a lot of views as to why this is happening. Many of us, without the, the, the knowledge of geography, topography, and how to produce a race course, uh, fit to have uh, a sport conducted on it. Um, and so it was interesting to hear what Ed said, because a lot of people have uh, used the, the, the theory that overwatering overwatering has caused this issue. Um, it's interesting to hear what he's saying about it. Um, I think just looking or listening to, to what uh, he has spoken about or what other people have spoken about as well with regards to grass growth and the fact that maybe overwatering over a period of time might have uh, caused, what do they call it, shallow uh, rooting. And so you don't have the, the roots going down as deep as you need to in order to provide a safe surface, allowing a little bit of loose uh, surface on top with the the, the shorter grass, then maybe that that's something to, to think about. But Ed's particular point of view about the overwatering is is interesting uh, and and it, it does make sense from from thinking about it as a as a sort of physical point of view when you think about how uh, 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 something becomes slippery when it involves grass it would involve a uh, light amount of water uh, on a very firm surface that tends to be the simple equation for uh, for, for someone like me to to think that that would be the cause of it where you think that Overwatering would actually allow enough cushion to to allow horses to get enough grip, get deep into the surface enough. But um, it seems as if we have this issue at the moment uh, that might just be a result of a number of policies, perhaps uh, that is a wider issue within the sport. Whether it's I don't know, you know, from a welfare horseman wanting decent ground. You know, it, it's even mentioned Ed's mentioned their climate change and how that's affecting uh, the sport. So there are a number of factors to consider. The main issue right now is for every race course to be uh, to take enough precautions before the start of racing uh, to ensure that the, the, the race course is safe to conduct a meeting. Yeah, several trainers, notably Eve Johnson Horton, have really launched into the race courses saying you've got one job and that is pr to provide a safe racing surface. Well, as we found out in recent days, they've got plenty of jobs. But yes, that is the one key one to ensure that the, the race meeting takes place safely. And she's called for the BHA to dish out hefty punishments and fines to race courses who can't produce a safe racing surface and can't get to the end of the day. What's your thought on that? Well, I think there ought to be proper investigations as to why the racing surface has ended up as it has. I mean, I was at Haydock on the weekend and uh, speaking to Kirkland Tellwright. He was adamant that having walked the course before, having prepared it. And the interesting thing for me, Nick, is when you hear all, all parties involved at Beverly, Haydock, Chester and Lingfield, they're all saying they haven't done anything different to previous years when 
they've produced very safe racing ground where they've produced meetings which haven't been abandoned. So therefore, perhaps something is now coming to light that hasn't been. Time has obviously been the issue here. But when you speak to some of them, like Kirk and Telwright, he's saying that he walked the course with the ground staff, with uh, other officials, and it was fine. He'd done nothing different to the course in previous years. And that, that seems to be the concern because then, obviously, the races take place and then jockeys have an issue with the, the racing. You're seeing the evidence of the slipping. Um, and it, it's, it's a significant worry at the moment. As PJ McDonald said, it, you can't be in any way a sportsman going out to compete at such a high octane, in such a high octane sport and have any, any fears or concerns about safety because it's just, it just is a horrible recipe. There was an interesting passage of play yesterday at Windsor which is another arena racing company, ARC-owned track. And their CEO, Martin Cruddus, was on track at Windsor and had been watching on events at Lingfield. Um, Sky Sports Racing's Matt Chapman asked Martin Cruddus whether the races that were on the turf could have been switched to the synthetic all-weather surface because the turf was slippy. Martin Cruddus said that he'd asked the BHA, or the arena racing company, had asked the British Horse Racing Authority whether they could do that, and the British Horse Racing Authority had denied that request. And Cruddus seemed more than a little peeved by this and said that if we want to be an agile sport, we need to be reacting more quickly to events like this, while not trying to abdicate any responsibility for the um, inadequate preparation of the turf surface in the first place. Uh, there was some debate about this, Rishi. Obviously, it's something in the United States you get quite a lot off the turf, stick it on the dirt, you can <clears> take <throat> your horses out and, and, uh, and, and, and swap your bets or whatever. What's your view on it here? I think it's quite an awkward thing to do as quickly as he would have wanted it yesterday. Um, obviously, one of those races, a handicap, and uh, the, the, the potential for <laughs> the whole frame of the race to be very different by moving surfaces. I understand they do it in America, but here, I think it's quite an awkward thing to do. Logistically, for bookmakers, it must be very difficult when people have had a bet uh, on one particular type of racing surface that they expect and the configuration of a race course uh, in, com in comparison to the, 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 the all-weather in comparison to the turf course. And so I, I think whilst I understand and I, I, I get the sentiment of why you'd want to save the day, I think it's quite logistically a very difficult thing to do and to say you'd want them to be a bit more agile and to act quickly. Well, I'm not certain that that's actually... The, the, the crux of the argument of what happened yesterday. I personally thought the right decision was made not to have the races uh, once they've been abandoned for the turf on, on another surface. I think it's just too much, uh, too, too difficult to reframe the races and to, and for, as I said, for the bookmakers, logistically, it would have been uh, a, a really tricky situation. But also I feel it's slightly, and I know you, you, you quantified what he said, but it distracts from the main issue of yesterday at Lingfield, which was the surface was not satisfactory for racing. And I think the interesting point that you raised there is this is not the first bit of apparent buck passing uh, onto the BHA as passions understandably run high over this. The, the PR effort from Chester over the last few days has been interesting, initially rather inadequate, with a statement saying, unfortunately, racing was abandoned today due to concerns from stewards and jockeys regarding the ground. The final decision not to race was taken by the BHA stewards. Horse and jockey welfare is paramount. We respect their decision. As per our terms and conditions, no refunds will be offered after the feature. Terse would be a polite way of putting that, particularly in an era where we speak so much about how important it is to retain customers, and particularly after Chester was one of the tracks that suffered a, a big shortfall in uh, customers for their big May festival. Now, clearly, somebody at Chester has realised that wasn't terribly sensible and has issued something a little more uh, conciliatory to the client base and racegoers since. Um, but it might be a case of too little too late, Rishi. Uh, either way, I'm, I'm glad Chester have, have, have clocked this in the last 24 hours. Oh, absolutely. The initial statement from Chester on Saturday did seem, as you, you say, <clears throat> a little bit terse, uh, almost uh, a little bit of disregard for, for the punters that had paid for a full day's racing and saying that the decision would be taken out of their hands. And ultimately, safety is 
absolutely paramount. As you said, it's, 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 a li- it's lives. Lives are on the line and, and you cannot take any chances in those situations. Um, and I felt that Chester's statement on Saturday uh, was understandable in the sense that it, it, it made sense, obviously, because their rules are their rules. But ultimately, the, the latest statement and the turnaround from Chester hits the nail on the head, the fact that uh, they use the word the moral obligation, the moral thing to do, the correct moral thing to do, was to consider compensation for what had happened. It's taken a while to get there, um, but ultimately the pressure of whatever, whether it's social media or in general, uh, has, I feel, made a a huge difference here. And Chester have finally, uh, I think, come to their senses, because I thought what, uh, what happened on Saturday was was disrespectful and showed disregard for, for the punters. Right. Let's just try and consider the cost of this. You're abandoning meetings halfway through. The huge cost for owners, trainers, getting the horses there. The cost for people who've paid to go to the races who are not getting a refund back and the cost of their fuel there and back from the race course. The effect that's going to have for their future race going and how much revenue is therefore lost to the sport because of their own lack of confidence in the game. People being put off uh, owning racehorses because of this, not to mention the effect on the levy from the bets lost, the effect on watch and bet and the media income streams. If this happens on a terrestrially televised day, then that's going to exacerbate the problem. This is this is going to run into the millions, Rishi, and that's counting. It is. Um, I'm afraid that <laughs> the picture that you've just painted, whilst very real, also suggest what a terrible position we are in. I mean, it's it's slightly depressing that in this this week of of one of the greatest races, uh, certainly one of my favourite races, one of my favourite weeks, that we are having to uh, consider the situation that the sport is currently in. You know, there are a number of issues, obviously, in the sport regardless. But now that we've got these abandonments and the knock-on effect of those abandonments, it just further increases the, 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 I hate to use the word, but I think it's accurate. I think the dire situation that the sport continues to find itself. Um, and yes, the, 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 there is significant cost where things are going wrong, uh, unexpectedly when things are going wrong. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the only solution right now is to put them right as quickly as possible, um, because otherwise that cost is only going to go one way, and that is up. Yeah, and you do not underestimate how 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 significant a problem this is. You, as, a, as a, I'm not entirely in agreement with it, with Eve Johnson Horton, but where I do agree with her is you you simply have the basic principle of getting from the beginning of the race meeting to the end. Yeah, uh, and that, yeah that's that's the very basic before you start putting the trimmings on top. Yeah, I, I said, when I think I didn't quite get to, get to the answer. Apologies, because I got distracted in talking about the fact that. Um, you know, those meetings have been abandoned and the courses have felt that they have conducted the preparations in the same manner as they have done year upon year, meeting upon meeting and day upon day. And in that sense, I, I, I do have some sympathy with the race courses for then encountering a situation which clearly they couldn't have predicted. Uh, and as, as, as a few of the clocks have said, you know, they prepare the race course as they always have done with safety at the forefront of their mind. And they have been caught unaware or at least caught by a situation that they, they never expected. The only thing I can say is uh, I, I can't, I can't, I think finding the race courses in that, that this particular scenario is, is quite harsh. Um, but I do feel that we need to learn the lessons as quickly as possible and get on the front foot to prevent this happening any, anymore. And that, that simmering tension between racecourses and the British Horse Racing Authority, again, that cuts to the very heart of the power structures of British racing. That's not exactly going to help matters when people are trying to decide between this themselves within their, their tripartite power structure how the fixtures are going to be sorted out next year, whether we're going to get the 300 races cut off the fixture list and how that's all going to work out. You know, there's no signs of harmony here. <laughs> this, the more we have this conversation, the more depressed I, I'm feeling about where, where we're heading. You're absolutely right. The, the knock-on effect of, of what is going on at the moment in terms of uh, the conversations between the different uh, bodies, between the different um, agreements that we have to come to in this sport, uh, unfortunately, is only, only going to drive 
the wedge in a little bit deeper and uh, and make things a little bit harder to come to a, any agreements and conclusions for the future. But uh, it's a it's a very precarious position we are in at the moment. All right, should we try and lift the mood? Please. <laughs> If I if I said to you, Sir Michael Stout might be about to win the derby, that's yes. going to lift your mood, yes? Yes, uh, that does lift my mood. Um, yeah, uh, gosh, you know, uh, I, I'm very rarely do I ever put up a horse to follow for the season and it ends up actually even winning a race or even running. <laughs> I've had a pretty horrid record over the years, but I've been I've been hoping that Desi so was, this, was was this the horse? It would, did you put this up in the racing TV magazine? Uh, no, I don't. I don't know if I did one for the racing TV magazine. Uh, um, I think this was in the. Uh, uh, Lee Mottasett asked me uh, for my predictions for twenty twenty two for the Racing Post, um, and so far <laughs> I hate to say it. So far I hate to say it. It's it's actually been remotely accurate. <laughs> I um I said things are going to get worse in the sport, which is a one hundred one. I felt um, slightly longer odds. I was hoping that Sir Michael Stout would have a classic contender and. Honestly, I know people will say that, you know, I know huge Sir Michael, but Sir Michael Stout is a a hero of mine because of uh, the way he, or the horses that he trained as I was growing up. And it's it's so uplifting to know that in his mid-70s, he has got a live Derby hope, the favourite for the Derby. And he was mightily impressive in the Dante. You know as well as I do, Lucky, there is no way that he would have been 100% for the Dante, which suggests that the Derby... He's got a big chance. Just tell me a little bit more about why you feel such a kind of close personal connection to, to, to Sir Michael Stout and why this would mean so much to you. I know you've got a, a show coming out on Racing TV tomorrow evening. Yes. Uh, well, it's, it goes back to, you know, I, I'm, I'm always a little bit tentative when I talk about stuff like this because I'm, I, I don't want people to think that I'm driving the diversity and inclusion agenda uh, unnecessarily. but. As someone who came from abroad and loved horse racing, when I started when I started going to school here and I started following racing with a deep passion, when I know or knew that Sir Michael Stout had also come from the Caribbean, uh, it gave me someone to attach myself to. So as a child growing up, I attached myself to Sir Michael Stout and Walter Swinburne. And as a consequence, I had the most wonderful ride following their careers, uh, following all the horses that they had. And it, it, it gave me, it gave me a huge love of the sport, which I've turned into a career, I turned into a life. I've met great friends. And without Sir Michael Stout uh, coming from Barbados and training racehorses in the early 80s, I probably or may not have um, been where I am today. Uh, now you just have to imagine that with our tune playing underneath. <laughs> was that was that over the top? And it's that uh, no, not remotely over the top. I'm tearing up here. Oh, bless you. Well, we have heard a lot about Sir Michael Stout in recent days, and quite rightly so, and also about Richard Kingscote, the man who rides Desert Crown. We haven't heard too much about the owner. Saeed Suhail. He is the international owner in focus in this month's Thoroughbred Owner Breeder in association with Great British Racing International. And I've been speaking to his racing manager, Bruce Raymond, to find out a bit more about the man who's already tasted Derby victory with Chris Kin. Well, he's, um, he's a Dubai businessman. He's in construction um, and he's built several, I guess, skyscrapers in 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 Dubai, and uh, I think he originally built for uh, built, built a sports club for the, the late Sheikh, Sheikh Maktoum Al Maktoum, um, and they were sort of buddies together. I think he went to school with the with the with the royal family, and then um, now he uh, he's bought he owns a hotel in Newmarket called the Heathcourt Hotel, and he when he comes. To Newmarket, he of, of course stays there, um, and uh, he's got various properties in in London. But um, yeah, he's just a businessman. Uh, and your your association with him comes from your your work with with uh, uh, Joe Mercer and Sheikh Maktoum Al Maktoum during his his period as a as a massive owner in in this country. That's right. Yes, and I, I think I first met. Um, uh, Saeed Suhail. He had horses with Ben Hanbury, one of which was called White, the White Crown, 
and that's the name of his company in uh, in Dubai, White White Crown White Crown Towers and various things like that. So I think that's when I when I first met him. You must have very fond memories of 2003. We spoke to Kieran Fallon yesterday as part of our tribute to to Lester Piggott, and uh, and that ride on that ride on Chris Kin for Saeed Sahel was one of those Epsom rides that that Piggott himself would have been proud of. Definitely, I think it was a very very special ride. He he went after he won on him won on him at Chester. He said this was going to win the Derby, and I thought oh, I can't see that, but uh, lo and behold, it did, and he gave it a spectacular ride, um, as he often did in the, in those big races. You know, he was a very very good jockey. Well, of course, you went into there, and and Chris Kinn sort of came into the party quite late that year, having won the D Stakes at Chester, and suddenly there he was and won. This has been a slightly longer established deal with Desert Crown. He's been favourite for the race for quite some time now. Uh, and Bruce, how how does your role come into play in a in a week like this? Um, I just have to answer questions like I am to you, and also uh, liaise between the trainer and. And the owner, and the owner sometimes gets a little bit uptight about it, and excited about things, and I'm sort of in the, in the middle of the two. He talks to Michael maybe once a month, but he talks to me three times a day. So um, it's he wants to know every detail about every horse that he has, um, just because he's got a lot of enthusiasm um, with regard to horses he has about to I guess thirty horses in training. And um, with various trainers, and the better ones are with with Michael at the moment. And and how are you feeling about about Saturday uh, generally? What's your what's your take on the race as a whole? I think going into the race, he's definitely the best horse. I think this is a. I feel this is a better horse than Chris Kin by far. And if he's not on the day, he certainly will be. You know, Chris Kin got beaten in King George afterwards. I think. I think I'm saying that. But uh, he, this this horse is a better horse, and I don't think he's reached his. Certainly not reached his peak yet. And um, I just feel this is yeah. He's a worthy favourite. He's the best horse going into the race. Then in going out, coming out of the race, who knows? You've got to, you've got to have a bit of luck in running. You've got a good draw. Uh, everything's going to be go go well for him. But going into the race, I would be surprised if any jockey would would like would want to swap him. You know, I, I definitely, I'm pretty confident he's the best horse going into it, and but will improve a lot. And even as a back in three year old, four year old, maybe five year old, who knows? Okay, it's Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their excellent stallion book and equally superb uh, global stallion app. And I'm very pleased. We don't get many chances to head to South Africa, but we, we do today. And we're heading to Drakenstein Stud, which is owned by the Rupert family. In Britain, they race as Caton Park Stud, having bought the 900-acre uh, farm off Judmont five years ago at Wargrave near Henley and you'll recognize the colors now the sky blue with the white hollow box on the body horses in training with Ed Dunlop and William Haggis and you might remember Glenn Artley ran a fine race at York the other day pleased to check in with Kevin Somerville who's the racing manager at Drakenstein um, it, I'm trying to picture it in my mind Kevin 130 hectares on the on the slopes of the Lormoran wine estate near near Franchuk that sounds absolutely heavenly tell me a little bit about it Nick yeah thanks very much for having me um, chat to you today it's uh, yeah it's a spectacular place to to work um, again I spent a lot of time um, I think back in 2003 2004 thinking about how the stud should be laid out and uh it's very sort of, I guess, rolling hills, um, vineyards on the top slopes and, and, and horse paddocks on the bottom. Um, you know, incredible setting with the Drakenstein Mountains. And uh, we're in the Franschhoek Valley, which is is about as beautiful as it gets. And uh, yeah, it's a very lucky, lucky place to work. And for you personally, I'm, you're making it sound as though it wasn't that hard to, to go home after, after your, your training with the Godolphin Flying Start all those years ago. No, very much so. I actually, I mean, I visited uh, uh, the farm back in 2006, I think. Um, and as I came through the gates, I um, I said to myself, I, I really need to, you know, somehow get a job here at some point in my life. Um, and uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to to start sort of employment about nine, nine and a half years ago with Gaynor. And uh, 
it's been an incredible journey working with her and uh yeah um one of the luckiest guys uh, to to work on this farm and there are horses who've stood on on the farm in in the not too distant past who people will remember very well um king's barnes lancaster bomber duke of marmalade the last named made a really pretty significant impact in in south africa uh, ju- just just tell me a little bit about the sort of policy of, of of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to do in terms of importing stallions yeah, look, i think look again has always been very sort of worldly in your view of south africa and so the idea is to obviously uh, bring some bloodlines to south africa that would have some sort of impact um the Duke in particular was obviously a, a horse that we admired in racing. Um, and, you know, Tom Goff presented us with a horse, uh, you know, some time ago. And, uh, you know, his statistics looked pretty, it looked pretty good at the time. Um, and he was sort of getting fast ground, tough horses, which would sort of suit the South African environment. And um, <clears throat> we, you know, we approached the idea, we flew over to go look at him. And we thought he would really sort of fit the mold of um, the South African horse, but also suit our broodmare band, which maybe needed a little bit of, um, you know, bulk and size put into it. And uh, and so again, or you know, uh, made the decision. She obviously has always been very good friends with uh, with John Magna um, from Coolmore, so it was an easy deal to be done. And uh, and he's had a wonderful impact on the South African breeding industry. Um, I guess his 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 own failing. Was that he he sired far too many decent fillies and and not enough decent colts, um, but maybe that on the end will be um, you know what he's known for. Um, you know he's already a successful broodmare sire, so we've raised a number of his decent fillies, in particular um, Rain in Holland, who's had a spectacular season this year. Uh, you also stood horse chestnut uh, at, at the farm. Uh, for those international listeners who aren't quite familiar with the impact of horse chestnut, try and sum him up what he means to south african racing and breeding yeah i mean he was uh i mean you know i i i'm not i haven't been around for that long um so i can't remember (laughs) the days of sea cottage um but uh you know i think that those two are considered the, the the two greatest south african horses of all time um you know, he just he's, was that spectacular horse that that every breed is aiming to breed. You know, one that is just the, the frankel, I guess, of of the generations. Um, the one that you know just makes his 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 own contemporaries or, or every horse in training look rather moderate. Um, and and Mike, obviously, Mike Decock trained him, um, and he was uh, you know he was far too good for South Africa. And Mike took him across to America, and with the aim to go into the Dubai World Cup, unfortunately, he injured himself. But he. You know, then obviously went to go start at Claiborne. Um, but yeah, he would be our our version of Frankel. He was uh, an incredibly, you know, just uh, yeah, uh, spectacular racehorse with with all the attributes that that we you know that we admire. And uh, you know, it's a great shame that I guess maybe he didn't come straight home and, and start his breeding career here. Um, uh, perhaps America, in, in hindsight, you know, was might have been the wrong place for him, but. Um, you know, I think they're very much more dirt focused, and he was very much a turf, turf horse. So it was a pity, but um, you know, we ended up standing him later on in his life, and uh, you know, he was a, he was an incredibly kind horse, um, a wonderful nature, and you know, it was a real privilege for Drakenstein to stand a horse of of that sort of uh, icon status for South African breeders. Yeah, and Drakenstein's everywhere you look, really, in in South African racing. The the Lawmaran sponsorship of the of the Queen's Plate, which I think now is a, a win in your in for for the Breeders' Cup. Uh, I know, I know. Josh Christian's very fond of his, his trips to, to to Cape Town every year. Uh, you're the fifth leading vendor at the recent national yearling sale. We talked to Alistair Gordon on the podcast uh, a few months ago as well. Standing some really exciting young stallions as well. And I, and I, one thing that Weatherby's do do, and I get, get given these by by Nick before we do these slots, is the private stud books for some of the the private studs. And just looking through the depth of quality of your breeding operations, it's it's quite something. What from from your perspective and, and from Gainer's perspective, what's the ultimate objective? What, what would you really want to be in terms of an international uh, force? Oh, I think it, I mean it's, it's hard. I mean, look, um, you know, you have your. I, I guess you want to try and breed horses that are that are good enough to come back to the stud. Um, ultimately, um, you know, breed a horse um, that is good enough to retire to stud as a stallion. And, and have have some sort of influence. I guess that's that's every breeder's um, ultimate aim. But 
Uh, you look, the, the, the South African horses have challenges trying to get them out into into the world to compete. Um, I mean, everybody knows about our issues with African horse sickness, um, which seems to be very much sort of politically based, not really scientifically based. Um, we know that uh, the midge is, is obviously extremely dangerous, but we also know you can test for it and we know that you can, uh, you know, you can run some PCRs and, and almost be 99.99% sure that the horse is not carrying it. I think almost 100% sure the science has, has told us that. So we want to compete on a, on a fair fair playing field, not having to travel for not, you know uh, three to six months to be able to compete in races. So I think that that's the ultimate aim. But, but because of the African horse sickness ban, it has, I guess, allowed us as South African breeders to really concentrate on our own bloodstock. I think in some ways we... We benefited off the fact that we are isolated from the rest of the world in some ways so that we haven't had, you know, the more powerful nations come and just mop up our Group 1 winning fillies um, like it has happened in many other, you know, countries, New Zealand, Argentina, um, Brazil, places like that where a lot of the really good stock have, you know, ended up in the hands of uh, the Australians, the English, uh, the Americans. So in South Africa, we – and we've also, I guess, we've, we've uh, bred our own unique – um, bloodlines, you know, which is sort of totally new, unique to South Africa. We still have the Nijinsky line floating around in South Africa. It's basically dead in the world, but it's, it's sort of finding its way, you know, back in South Africa. We have the Roberto line, which is finding its way back in South Africa. So, you know, that, that I think has all been positive. So, you know, if other breeders around the world are looking for stock that is, um, you, know, you know, that is unique and they need outcrosses, South Africa is definitely a place to come and shop. So, you know, as breeders, I guess we want to be able to be competitive with with the rest of the world and 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 compete on a on a level playing field. But that hasn't been possible. But that's still very much the aim. And uh, hopefully, with the exports that are likely to hopefully open, and I think what they're talking about is October this year. You know, we'll be able to travel and 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 find out where our stocks sort of fit into the world uh, the world stage. Well, thanks to Kevin and Bruce before that, and to all my contributors at the beginning of the program about the the ground. Now, Rish, you know you were talking about how Desert Crown was your horse to follow this year, and you know you were sort of rather puffing up your chest about that. <laughs> Big time. Well, I'm touche because um, last year I was asked for a horse to follow at the beginning of the season by the racing TV um, folks, and I put up a horse who managed to remain winless through the entire season. Um, <laughs> how, however, all, all good things come to those who wait, and yesterday at Santa Anita on Memorial Day. The feature race, the Gamely Stakes, Grade 1, went to the Brendan Walsh-trained Ocean Road, ridden by Umberto Rispoli, still in the colours of Qatar Racing, formerly trained by Hugo Palmer. Um, so there we go. Uh, uh, handsome odds of 51 to 10, or 5.1 to 1 to you and me. Well done, Lucky. I mean, it's, it's not an easy task, tipping a horse for the season ahead. Because if you tip a horse that's obvious for the season ahead, mm. you get all that criticism, and I don't want that. So you look for something outside the box, like you have done, like I did. Um, and occasionally when it pays off, it's very satisfying. Yeah, it, well, indeed. Um, but I just had to wait an awful long time. <laughs> now, we've, we've managed to go through this entire podcast without mentioning that you've got a runner in the Oaks. Yeah, I've got a, a 140th share in Rogue Millennium, um, who has been supplemented for the Oaks at the cost of 30 grand. Um, thankfully, she won most of it. Uh, winning the Lingfield Oaks trial on her, just a second start. I mean, yeah. incredibly. Good job, I, I must... good job you didn't have to pay for that and the wedding at the same time. Oh, crimes. Yeah, don't, don't bring back those memories of, of cost. Um, but yeah, uh, thank, well, let's, you know, let's hope that she, she runs all right because um, uh, a lot of people, quite a few of our owners are coming over from Spain. Quite a few of the people in the syndicate are coming over from Spain this week. They're taking a, a double decker bus. Uh, on the inside of the track, the Rogues Gallery. And uh, I mean, she has made amazing progress. Obviously, a, a Shadwell cast off for 35 grand bought by uh, Jackie Clover. Um, and she only made her debut at the end of April, which was 24th of April. She won at, at Weatherby. And then a couple of weeks later, she went to Lingfield. And she's, she's improved a lot. But this, I, I think this is a really good race. You know, I think the, the quality of fillies in this year's race is as good as I can remember in recent times. You know, Emily Upjohn and Nashua, they're two standout fillies. I'd happily make both of those favourite. And yeah. obviously they're at the top of the market. I've um, got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more hopeful for a place for you than you are. I don't think there is that much depth beyond the Gosdens. Really? 
Not really. I oh, like see. I, I like concert I like, hall on Tuesday. I like. So I'm not sure about Tuesday's form. I like the Joseph who went to France for the Santalary. I thought she was the oh, danger. Yeah. She's out of the way. I, so. Genuinely, and obviously, there's a there's a great deal of uh, bias in it. But I genuinely think she's got a shot at getting placed. I do. Right. So, I mean, you look at horses who've been placed in the Oaks over the years. Yeah, Mystery Angel last year for George Bowie. Go all the way back to Rising Cross. Do you remember Dave Nevison had a yeah, little bit of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, didn't Elsie Elsie had a filly that had no real business being in there that finished second. I. I, I oh, don't yeah, behind think, Esuara, that's it. Yeah. I don't think you're a I don't think you're a million to be in the three. No, the only concern I have, and this is from a, a race analysis point of view, is that she's hung left both times, the two runs at Weatherby and obviously at Lingfield. Um and I just worry about her on on the camber. But she has had the experience of Lingfield. Hopefully she's learned from that. And obviously Jack has ridden her, Jack Mitchell has ridden her both times. So he will know uh, about that and he will know to hopefully um, try and avoid any situation where it's, it's too dramatic. Um, so I'll, I'll be trying to give him some advice anyway <laughs> uh, on, on, on perhaps how to avoid uh, any dangers later on. But I do, I agree. I, I think she has got any, a genuine, genuine each way chance. And I say that without bias. And if if she wins the Oaks, he will forever be in in all your in all your um, TV appearances, particularly your network TV appearances. He will always be my brother-in-law, Jack Mitchell. Yes. Oh, he he was even before I got married. <laughs> my my, my brother-in-law. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's gonna. I don't know what he'll be if he was if he were to win the Oaks. Uh, it's a very big weekend for him, by the way, because he's got not just a ride in the Oaks, but he's got a ride in the Derby as well uh, on West Wind Blows for. Um, Simon and Ed Chrisford, uh, who who bolted up last time, so um, it's a it's a very big week for for everyone involved. Mm, might get him on the podcast before the week is out. Um, Richie, thank you very much. Have you got a tip for today? I have got a tip for today. I'm on my way shortly to Newbury to join forces with Steve Mellish on on Racing TV, and I like Tregoni in the uh, ten past three at Newbury. Unlucky first time, poor trip, second start. Um, I think it's a, a winnable race today. Excellent. Rish, thanks so much for your time. Um, we will Cheers, see lucky. you very soon and see you at Epsom. Thank you very much for listening. That was Tuesday, May the 31st. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a review and a rating on any of your podcast providers. And we will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily. Brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.